Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this edition of the Around the Ladder podcast. Around the Ladder is a production of the University of Tennessee Pride of the Southland Band Alumni Council in conjunction with the University of Tennessee Advancement Office. And we're pleased today for this segment of Around the Ladder to be here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, compliments of the WGFX 104.5 The Zone Studios. I'm Ronnie Bowling, your host and a graduate of the University of Tennessee, and shall I say, a four-year letterman of the Pride of the Southland Band. I'll be your host for this edition of Around the Ladder, and my co-host is Brian Hardy, Director of Campus-Wide Development and one who works very closely with the Pride of the Southland Marching Band, among other duties as a son, shall we say, including the executive producer of Around the Ladder. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. You know, that that, that title goes right at the top of the resume. So <laughs> glad to be here and excited about this special episode. Great. Well, this edition of Around the Ladder calls for a huge happy birthday celebration. Maybe we should play happy birthday in the background. 50 years, 50 years of Rocky Top being played at University of Tennessee sporting events. 50 years since the beloved song that's played early and often at UT sporting events and also known as the official state song or one of five of the state songs of Tennessee. Joining us for this first segment of Around the Ladder to talk about the history of Rocky Top is our good friend Del Bryant. Del, the son of Felice and Boudelow Bryant, the writers of Rocky Top, Dell, welcome to Around the Ladder. Well, I'm awfully glad to be here, Ronnie and uh, Brian. And I am one of the sons. I have a brother named Dane who I wish he could be with us today. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you here, and we're excited to learn more about Rocky Top. But before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about Dell Bryant. Tell us, Dell, what's it like growing up as the son of musicians? I understand you hung out in the Grand Ole Opry a little bit rubbed the shoulders with folks like Chet Adkins, uh, and then growing up, went to, to attend the University of Miami. Tell us about your growing up and that decision to go to Miami. Well, I was, I was born in South Georgia in 1948, and uh, my parents had their first hit in late 1948, about the time I arrived. So I, I arrived in a world that was all about music, that was all about creating songs that, that artists would sing. And... Being raised in that house, I, I truly thought that everybody was a songwriter, everybody was a musician, and that everybody used to come to our, our family's house just to see me as a baby. Because <laughs> I remember the early faces, I remember people like Chet and Eddie Arnold and, and uh, the Carters and so many other people. When you're a young child, you know how people bend over and grab you by the ears and smile and get right in your face? Yeah. So I remember the faces of country music far before I remember the rest of their bodies. Wow. But uh, my brother and I were raised uh, backstage Grand Old Opry. Every weekend we'd go with the folks while they would pitch songs and encourage the audience. My mother used to go out in the audience and scream at the top of her lungs when anyone did one of our songs. Because if you could get an encore on the Grand Old Opry, it just help embed the song into the listeners a little bit harder. So my mother would come home every uh, every night after the opera with the family, and she'd be about hoarse. And my father, <laughs> meanwhile, was working the backstage pitching songs as the people went on for their time and as the people came off. And then jamming with all of the great musicians that were uh, at the opera, especially Chet and uh, so many of the great you know string players. 
But so that was my early life, and uh, people were always at our home uh, picking up songs, and my mother was always uh, making spaghetti and food that wasn't generally available in the South at that time because she was a Sicilian. And so they would uh, get people to the house. They would feed them all they could eat and pour the wine and the whiskey, so to speak. And about the time they couldn't move, Dad and Mom would start pitching songs, and that was their... <laughs> they had a captive that, audience at that, that point. That was their ploy. That was the, the scam that they were running, and uh, it was very successful. So I grew up in that, in that uh, type of arrangement, and uh, we had some of the biggest stars in country music, or we had the biggest stars in country music, and many of the early pop people and, uh, and stars showing up at the house all the time, people from... Burl Ives and Robert Mitchum to, of course, the Porter Wagners and the Roy Acuffs and the Jim Reeves and the Patsy Kleins and just about anybody you could think of, uh, a lot of the early rock and rollers. So it was a great childhood, but all good things have to end, and I did have to get an education. And as Brian was saying, I don't know why I went to the University of Miami. I guess it was because Rocky Top hadn't been written and that bond wasn't <laughs> totally there. And... Uh, like any other kid, I was just trying to escape, you know, so right. I wanted to get far enough to be able to get home, but at the same time feel as though I was an individual living on my own. So I went to the University of Miami, got out, uh, worked with my family, little short Air Force uh, uh, guard gig, trying to make sure that I may not have to go to Vietnam. That was the big fear in my my Absolutely. Uh, I remember my, those days. Yeah, my brother went, and I mm-hmm. went into the garden, got out fairly soon, and uh, went to House of Bryant, started pitching songs such as Rocky Top and uh, Bye Bye Love and All I Have to Do is Dream and Love Hurts and a lot of, a lot of different tunes. And after about a year or two, I uh, had an opportunity to go to work at BMI, but I was hired, uh, I think I was 24 uh, the week I went to work at BMI. So I'd have been 23 and turned 24 my first week. Uh, my parents were Nashville's first professional songwriters, and uh, they made the income from the sources that songwriters make it, which is mechanicals, which are when records were sold, sheet music was sold, so forth and so on, unit sales. And then you made your best income from performing rights, which meant when radio stations played your songs, when your songs appeared on television, uh, situations like that, that's where you really made most of your money on a hit song and eventually a catalog that had grown to be a, a good catalog. So my folks were very close to the people who made sure they were making income. And Francis Preston in Nashville was the head of uh, BMI, which is Broadcast Music Inc., which is the world's largest performing rights organization. And they were very friendly with her. And I had met the lady many times and knew her from the time I was probably 10 years old. And uh, I believe I first met her in probably 58, 57. And she called my home one day when my brother and I were working for uh, our publishing company family's publishing company. And my father got on the phone and said, oh, hello, hello, Francis. Felice, it's Francis. It was always a big deal when Francis called you. Yeah. Uh, it sounded like money, you know. <laughs> 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 and uh, so my father said, oh, oh, sure. 
Police, go get on the phone upstairs. Uh, Francis wants to speak to both of us. So my mother trotted up the stairs. My brother and I were sort of right there getting ready to eat lunch. And, uh, and we, we probably weren't five feet from my father and, uh, and a few more feet from my mother. She ascended the stairs. But she got on the phone, and I heard my dad. He was right there saying, uh-huh, oh, yeah, oh, interesting. Okay, we'll call you back. And he hung up. And this, I'm telling it to you as though it's almost real time. Yeah. My mother starts walking down the stairs, and my brother and I look at her, and she's crying. And as she walks down, either I or my brother said, what's wrong? And my mother said, as though to the whole room of only three of us, <laughs> Francis Preston wants to hire one of my boys, and she doesn't <laughs> care which one. And then she just <laughs> starts crying again. Wow. So as she hits the level floor, my father said, yes, that's it, sons. Uh, Francis would like to hire one of you. Anybody interested? And my brother had just gotten back from Vietnam, and he said, I'm not interested. Yeah. You know, he'd just gotten back, had gotten a GTO. He was out on the streets living life. And he, the thought of putting on doing anything yeah. other than jumping in that car and maybe listening to some of the folk songs and trying to spread them around town didn't appeal to him at all. It was a, it was a quick reaction. Well, I had uh, a baby, a wife, and one in the oven, as they say. <laughs> and uh, when you work for your parents, sometimes that's not the best way to make a whole lot of money. Right. And yeah. at least not in the beginning. Right. I mean, they want you to work for what, what you earn, and they want you to learn and earn and learn. There's a rhyme. And uh, I understand it now better than I did then. Uh, and I was, I was making about $100 a week in 1972. Mm. And... Uh, which wasn't a whole lot if you had one on the way and one on the floor. Right. And uh, after taxes came out of it, it was about $78, $79. So I said, well, let's talk about it. It might, it might be an opportunity. And Dad said, yeah, you know, go to work for BMI. And uh, after about a year or two, just think of your phone book. You know, you could come back then and you and your brother could really get some songs cut. Because at that time, Dane and I would go into places and pitch songs and They'd call us Little Boodle and Little Felice. We'd known them our whole lives, some right, of these people. Right. But, you know, dealing with us as uh, major representatives of our publishing company wasn't, wasn't a lot of respect there. It was just like, hi, boys. Yeah. So I said, yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, you might be right. And Dad said, well, I think it'd be a good idea. And so he called Francis back up. This hasn't taken a minute, by the way. And said, you know, Dell's a little bit interested. Let me put him on. So I got on the phone, and she told me that, well, the, the job is just working with songwriters, talking about the stuff I'm sure you already know. And uh, you get an expense account, a car, and $13,000. Wow. Which translated to about $300 a week. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after I put my eyes and my tongue back in my head... <laughs> I said, well, uh, that sounds interesting. And, and she said, well, I think it'd be great. And uh, when can you come to work? And I said, uh, one second. I said, Dad, when can I go to work? He said, well, and this was on a Thursday. He said, I think uh, Monday would be fine. <laughs> and, and, and she said, uh, Dell, we, we wear coat and tie or suit and tie every day because we're taking care of the money that songwriters make, and we, 
we certainly want to appear, not only appear, but we want to be uh, good financial fiduciaries of, of, their, right. of yeah. their dollars and cents, quite often just cents for songwriters. But uh, so I said, uh, she said, that's what you'll have to do. And I said, well, I don't really have that, that wardrobe. And she said, well, I'm sure you can, you can get the stuff that you'll need. And I said, Dad, uh, I need suits and ties. And Dad said, don't worry. And so then I, she, I said, I'll see you Monday, you know, and, and I was hired at BMI on the phone. Wow. My father called Levy's, uh, which is a yep. clothes haberdashery in town. Right. Still uh, there. Yeah. Over 180 something years, I think they've been in business. Yeah. yeah. And uh, worked out a thousand dollar budget for my clothing, which got me suits, sports coats, pants, ties, belts, shoes. You were set. I mean, golly, I was set. So. I went to work at BMI. I'm sure you awesome. got a longer answer than you anticipated, Ronnie. Well, the indus- music industry, no doubt, changed a lot when you were there uh, over that 40-year span. Tell us some about some of those changes and even changes in broadcast music role with artists over that span of 40 years. Well, I think the biggest technical change from the BMI uh, point of view, which I was totally embedded in and consumed with, uh, we used to do samples to determine how the music was played and how much music was played. Much like you take a, a needle and prick your finger and they, you put the blood mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a, some sort of little glass thing and they look at it underneath the microscope or, and they can tell you pretty much what's going on. They can examine that drop of blood and tell you what's going on throughout your whole body. It's, uh, it's scientific, but it's not necessarily always accurate. Well, today, we can actually keep up with every performance in real time, and it's not really a, a, a guessing game to any extent. So that has changed tremendously. Uh, stations used to be country stations, pop stations, rock and roll stations, easy listening stations, uh, adult contemporary, all these different genres of music. Today... Radio is really slowly but surely taking more and more a backseat to music. And most of that music is being uh, consumed over the Internet, and it's streamed, it's this, it's that. You, you have your own uh, disciples of whatever type of uh, music you like, and they're, they're picking your playlist. And, and it's just it's a different way that music is consumed. But yet BMI is still there to sample, not sample, but to count the performances, and certainly in a digital world, you you can count every one of them, even better than they used to. And our income, the year I went to work at BMI, was hovering just a little bit beneath $40 million. Today, we're at close to a billion and a half dollars. Wow. So we are considered, as is ASCAP, our competition, the bank of songwriters. Right. So, so now you, everything has really changed yeah. in everybody's life, in yeah. every industry. So you grow up in the industry, you go to school, you come back, you work at BMI, but let's not forget, I understand you're quite the composer yourself. Tell us about your hit song of the 70s, I Cheated on a Good Woman's Love. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure that Brian suggested that question because... <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> I, well, I'm I'm very I'm very proud of being truly 
in every sense of the word, a one-hit wonder. <laughs> uh, I... I thought I was going to grow up and be a songwriter. When you when you hear songs such as uh, Rocky Top and uh, Love Hurts or All I Have to Do is Dream, written right in front of you, as my folks did, right in the in the living room, kitchen space, you really grow up thinking, well, damn, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I was a very prolific poet and wrote some songs and wrote a few with my dad and my mom and had a few things cut. In fact, I had a song on the album that they were writing for Archie Campbell when they wrote Rocky Top. I, I had a that. song that I wrote 100% on Archie's album, that old age uh, Golden Years album. But I, in 1978, after being there six years, and my job was to work with songwriters. BMI had, was a smaller company, as, as I said, and we ran it. Our management ran it much like a publishing company in that you accrued catalog. You, you, you signed writers. They got hot. You signed more writers. They got hot. You had hot writers. You made sure you kept. And the larger your catalog uh, became, the more valuable it was to the broadcasters that bought BMI licenses. So I was in a job where my, my job was really primarily creative, building the catalog managing relationships with songwriters, selling BMI as a, as a performing rights organization that would benefit a hot songwriter. So I had been doing that about six years, and uh, I, I still wrote poetry. I still wrote a few songs, but I never pitched my songs because to pitch my songs while working with songwriters just wouldn't truly be ethical in any, in any fashion. Right. Uh, but one of my best friends, Dale Morris, who ended yeah. up managing Alabama and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, just so many, so big and rich, and 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 so many uh, of the biggest stars still today. He and I were drinking uh, one one day, water, a little day drinking, water, and uh, water, of yeah. course. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he had come to Nashville as a songwriter, yeah. and we started talking about songs that we had written, and one thing and another. And I said, you know, I wrote a hit. I'm just sure it's a hit. And he said, really, what do you mean? I said, well, I wrote a song uh, a month or so ago, and I, th I think it's a hit. And he says, well, play it for me. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> since he, you ask. Since you ask. And he, um, you know, he had been managing Alabama for a short while, and uh I wasn't pitching it for Alabama because it wasn't an Alabama-type song. I wasn't even pitching it. I was pitching it to my friend just to enjoy it. As look I, as look I, what I did. Yeah, look yeah. what I did. Yeah. And I played, uh, he, you know, I've got to back up for a second. He, hasn't, he hadn't even started managing Alabama yet. Wow. He was managing Billy Crash Craddock. Mm. And because uh, I remember being at his office when he got the call from Harold Shedd to come over and listen to this new group, Alabama. And uh, so... This was well before that. So I played him this demo, guitar vocal, just me on a guitar, uh, just like my folks used to show their demos. Nothing really elaborate as they do today or as they even did in those days quite often. And he said, damn, I like that. I think I'm going to cut it. I said, what do you mean you think you're going to cut it? You're not much of a singer. He said, no, I've just moved Crash over from uh, uh, Universal 
or ABC. He was on ABC. Uh, I've just moved him to Capitol Records. And in the deal, I get to produce the first album. I said, well, golly, what a great deal and what an oversight on their part. Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I've never produced anything. But he took the song that quick. I mean, it just happened like that. Two weeks later, it had been cut, and they'd chosen it as a single. In, in 1978, the song went to number five in Billboard, and I was a hit songwriter. Wow. One-hit wonder, as a you say. A one-hit wonder. And I, my father, as the song climbed the charts, said, Dell, I've always known you're a writer, a good writer, and uh, this is your shot. You can just, You can just now go and become a writer. And after six years of working with struggling new songwriters and realizing not only from uh, my childhood, uh, but realizing truly how difficult it was to be a successful songwriter and how, how the world was just stacked against songwriters, Every, everything from the copyright laws not being quite generous enough to everyone competing for so few spaces in the charts. And uh, I, I said, well, I don't know, Dad. I don't think so, <laughs> you know. And uh, what I'd seen as a child was everything they wrote damn near got cut. And when you get out in the real world, that is not the way it works. Absolutely. So I said, no, Dad, I think I'll, uh, I think I'll take a, a, a break on that idea and uh, just keep on doing what I'm doing and get right. that you weekly know- check, you know. <clears throat> As you've talked about this story and getting the phone call from Francis and how your dad kind of lit up in his eyes, it wasn't an opportunity for Dell. It was an opportunity for the family business, right? To open oh, up yeah. more opportunity to pitch songs. and Get then, more cuts. That's right. And then when you cut the song, okay, finally, here's here's Dell's chance. He can, he can kind of walk away now from this little side gig and come back to the family business, which I think is interesting. But one of the things you said, Dell that I think we need to to revisit is what BMI was doing at that time, which was just helping to assemble collections uh, of, of work, which reminds me, and I think we need to remind our listeners, that Felice and Boodle O'Brien, while I'm not necessarily a household name to some in this town, household name, but for others not, they were as big of a deal and is a successful of a songwriting team, perhaps in the history of of music. And they're in the they're in the Country Music Hall of Fame, in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Um, talk about the collection as it stood, because I'm going to try to segue you back in here, Ronnie, to to Rocky Top here in a second. But how they wrote their songs, where they wrote their songs. Um, where they like to go to write what gave them inspiration. Uh, because I, I, you had told me at one point how many songs they had written versus how many it was cut, and it's a phenomenal ratio, if I recall. Oh, no. It's, they wrote literally thousands, 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 and thousands of songs. So I, I, would, I would say somewhere between 4,000 and maybe five. Mm-hmm. And we call in the business a song. It could be an instrumental. It can be a a regular song with lyrics, but dad being a master musician wrote a lot of instrumentals too. So they wrote a lot of songs, but, uh, they had come to town in, in, uh, the late forties and dad was, uh, pitching 
He got hired by Acuff Rose to pitch songs, but his deal was I'll only pitch my own songs, mine mm-hmm. and Felice's songs. And so they wrote a lot of songs, pitched a lot of people at the Opry. That There were no other real professional songwriters that did, did nothing but write songs. So they, they were in a very sweet spot. It was like shooting, uh, uh, that's so violent sounding, but a uh, fish in a barrel, as mm-hmm. I used to say when I was a kid. And uh, <clears throat> so they, they got a lot of songs cut, and they wrote a lot. I remember once Dad lost his raincoat. It was stolen out of his car. And... Uh, Dad was really completely in shock because he he estimated that he had about 18 songs in different pockets in that raincoat. And Chet, who was his just best friend, who had really taken over Nashville in the late 40s playing with the Carters and joining the Opry, uh, had been a big fan of Dad's uh, before my folks ever got here. My dad was a big violinist on uh, WSB. And... Chet opened up the Opry to Dad and and uh, got him into the backstages and really helped our our family integrate into the Grand Old Opry community. But when Chet heard that Dad had lost so many songs, he bought Dad a a uh, ledger. It was like an accounting ledger, a large ledger, and said, "Boodle, you've got to write your songs down in in, in these ledgers or books. Otherwise, you're just going to keep on losing them." And uh, so Dad and Mom started using those books. So they always wrote in a ledger, and Dad was the keeper of the ledger. All the, almost 99% of the stuff is in Dad's hand, whether it's a song Mother started or Mother wrote by herself or one he uh, wrote by himself or generally the songs they wrote together. So they, they kept their songs in ledgers, and eventually by the time... Uh, my father died. There were sixteen or seventeen ledgers. They could stack up to the middle of your thigh. Do we know the whereabouts of the ledgers? Yeah, my brother and I gave it to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Wow! And uh, during uh, the the two years that it was on display, they had a display. Uh, thousands of, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people saw them. They're they're still there, and they're 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 incredible to look at. In fact, I remember an event not too long ago that many of our listeners uh, may have attended at the Skirmerhorn Symphony Center where right. their music was highlighted and that was an eye opener for me learning how many of the Everly Brothers songs that they wrote Bye Bye Love, uh, Love Hurts, Dream and you can go on and on and on oh, and yeah. name so many songs that were cut by artists that we all remember but I wouldn't have known until that event that who they were actually written well, they- by wrote hits hits for Ricky Nelson, for Buddy Holly, and they had songs cut by all the other rock and rollers that weren't necessarily singles but were important cuts, Elvis and and, uh, and others. But uh, so they wrote in the ledgers. People came because my folks wouldn't travel with the ledgers, came to the house, uh, an endless stream of people. And uh, my folks, as you said, though, Brian, really weren't, household names except in, in, in this community with the music industry. I remember once they were invited to appear on uh, What's My Line, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, where you you have three impersonators and, mm-hmm. and one real person, and they never did that. They, they were pretty private people, but outside of uh, the industry, no one really knew who they were. I mean, uh, throughout my life, I, I would meet people like, 
uh, Paul McCartney and Keith Richards and Eric Clapton. Uh, in my in my line of work, I literally met everybody. I think, and once they became aware of who my parents were, they were become so effusive about how important those songs had been to their development in in their lives. So, the industry, the artists. Uh, knew who they were, but hardly anyone else did, and that's the way my folks liked it. Well, you had talked about um, the fact that you had a record or a, a track cut on that Archie Campbell album, which is what brings us to Rocky Top. So yeah. talk about the, the, the Archie Campbell album, how your parents were asked to, uh, to work on that and how that led to uh, what we have today uh, as Rocky Top. They had been uh, requested by Archie Campbell, who was a dear friend of theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the podcaster listeners, podcastee listeners, I guess you'd say, uh, are listeners of the podcast. There, I got it right. Might wonder who Archie Campbell is. He was one of the actors on the really famous uh, variety show Hee Haw, and he was one of the writers and creators. He was just a very clever country humorist. And he was a good friend of my family's. And so he requested mom and dad to write an album. He said, I've got a lot of fans, and I need an album that I, I would like to be called Golden Years because a lot of my fans are, are elderly, and uh, I'd like something written just for these people. Uh, I think it would be really successful for me. I could sell it here in Gatlinburg at the Archie Campbell Theater and so forth. And so Dad, of course, was excited. I mean, if you're a songwriter and somebody asks you to write a, a song for them, that's pretty. That's that's a big, wonderful request. If they ask you to write a whole album for them, boy, you you're gonna seize on that immediately. It's it's just a wonderful uh, project for a songwriter, or songwriters. So Mom and Dad, who loved Gatlinburg. I'd been going to Gatlinburg since the early, early, early 50s. I think 51 was our first trip up there. I can smell cotton candy and corn dogs right Oh, now. man. <laughs> and as Dane and I got old enough to go on the horse trails, yeah. uh, the folks would go with us on the horse trails, and uh, the whole while I'm sure they were going, oh, Jesus, this is terrible. My bum is sore, you know. But they would take us on those, and about the time we were old enough to go on the trips on the on the horse rides alone, they would give the guy an extra fifty bucks and say, "Keep him out a while." And that was probably the only time they ever got together, you know, in 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 private, relaxed ways in the mountains. Otherwise, my brother and I were just right there. So we went to Gatlinburg a whole lot, and uh, they used to love the Gatlinburg Inn, and uh, got very friendly with the Maples who owned it, and. They went up there a lot, and they would even go up in the winter when the Gatlinburg Inn was closed, and the uh, Maples would give them the key to the front door, and uh, they would be the only people there, no housekeeping, nobody else. They would take care of their own laundry and whatnot. So Dad called Rel Maples uh, and said, Rel, uh, we've got this request, and we, we want to come up and, and spend a couple of weeks there and just write this album that we've going to be working on. And Rel said, perfect, just come on up. They came up, Rel gave them the key, and they were in, I 
think it's, uh, I can't remember the suite that they were in. It was a living room bedroom. It was, I think, 308 or 208. Something like that, isn't it? Right? I, want, I wanted to say 321, but... Uh, I think it's 308. Yeah. <clears throat> but So they were in the room, and they'd gone there to write this Golden Age uh, album. And after about a week or two, Mother felt like she was the only one that was uh, Golden Age. Uh, she, <laughs> she was about, let's see, uh, 67. She would have been 42. Dad would have been uh, 47. So... Mother just one day, as my father used to say, sold. That means just gave him a look. And uh, she said, Boodlow, I just feel like I'm getting older and older and weaker and weaker. And I've been looking in the mirror the last couple of days to see if I'm getting grayer. She says, I'm miserable. At 42. We've, yeah. So we've, <laughs> we've just got to. I think I remember 42. <laughs> she said, I, we've just got to write something peppy. We've got to change the mood here. It's killing me. And Dad said, we only have a couple more songs to write for this project. Let's just finish them. My father was very goal-oriented. Mm-hmm. And my mother said, no, I just can't. I just can't take it. Dad said, come on, Felice, let's just finish this, and we'll write whatever you want to write. And she said, no, I, I, I can't go any further. My father just looked at her and said, okay, and grabbed the guitar and just started beating on it, and this is what came out. Wish that I was on old Rocky Top down in the Tennessee hills. And he sort of put the guitar aside, and she said, he said, now, what do you think of that? And she said, I love it. That's great. Let's write it. And my father said, really? <laughs> she said, yeah, that sounds great. And they wrote it in about 10 minutes. Mother spirits were lifted. Dad was kind of glad to have her off his... Uh, back and then they finished the old age songs and it just so happens the most important part of this story of course as uh, brian alluded to is that i had a song in the album no i i had written a song though shortly before that that was called young just yesterday which is also on that album and it was about of course being older and so it worked and uh they got the album, Mom Got Rocky Top, and I got Young Just Yesterday. So it was a win-win-win, a trifecta. Win-win-win. That's awesome. So what? you said that was 1967. What time of year? It was wintertime, you said? No, it, uh, yeah, it was, it was probably, I. you know, I'd have to know when they closed the hotel and whatnot. But okay. it was, it was, uh, it was cold, and, uh. They might have been might have been in the February kind of March part of winter. Okay. I think it was in the early part because they they had to when they showed the song to Sonny Osborne they had to dig it out and Dad couldn't even remember it. Mother was saying, you know that thing that thing we wrote in Gatlinburg, and uh, so it was it was the early part of uh, the year. So of sixty-seven, you, you mentioned Sonny Osborne coming over to the house. Um, as I recall it. As you have told me before, your dad gets a phone call from Sonny who says, we're about done on an album we're working with and we need maybe one or two more cuts to put a bow on it. Can we come over and look at the books? Is that, yeah. is that accurate? That, that would be pretty accurate. Yeah. Uh, and he did come over and they were going through some things and Sonny wasn't hearing anything that he liked especially. And mother said, Boodlow, what's that thing we wrote uh, 
what's that thing that we that we wrote while we were in Gatlinburg doing the thing with Archie and my father started reciting some of the old age songs and she said no you know that other thing and eventually they were able to come up with what she was talking about and dad went back and found found it in the book and uh so a complete afterthought yeah oh yeah complete i mean no artist ever called my folks to want to want a song we're looking for a song that my folks said oh no i don't think i have anything right. they always had something, <laughs> something yeah. and they'd, they'd write it uh for an appointment the next day i've seen my father sit in a chair for 24 hours and write like eight songs nine songs you know he was uh, a machine they were both machines it's just that Mother's machinery needed coffee and sleep. Uh, dad's didn't. And uh, so they started playing it. And Sonny said halfway through the song, or just in the first, that's it, that's it, Budo. I don't need to hear anymore. Just just put that down on a tape and uh, and uh, have one of the boys bring it over. Were you there? Uh, Do you remember 67, this? In 67, I wouldn't have been there. Okay. I don't believe, but I think Dane was. Okay. Uh, I'm not really sure. I tell you, it's, it's, it's a little hazy. This is even before the song was 10 years before the song or eight years before the song was played on, uh, on the field, but they got a tape together and they sent it over. And I think it was the next day or two days later, uh, took it in, showed it to Owen Bradley, who said, well, if that's what you want to do. And they recorded it over oh, at Decca records. Uh-huh, yeah. Owen, mm. famous Owen yep. Bradley. Yep. Uh, was a producer on that. So, it, if I remember correctly, correct and correct me if I'm wrong, it ends up on a B cut, on a single. And is first played. Was it Christmas Day? Well, I think by it Ralph was, Emery. Yeah, and it was the it was going to be the B side. I forget. Under most circumstances, I'd remember what the A side was. It was a song that. Uh, the Osmonds were really into, and uh, Ralph played it, and he said, "Wow, okay." He said, "What's on the other side?" I see it's a it's a Boulogne Felice song, and Sonny said, "Yeah, it's, it's it, we really like it." And he turned it over and played that, and his phone bank lit up, and within a week, it was a single and it was a rising hit. Right. And, and that, to me, the fact of how the song was born in the hotel room out of a out of a marital spat, <laughs> and the fact that it was found by oh, we do that at our house yeah, all the time. <laughs> it was found by uh, uh, Sonny Osborne almost by accident, and the fact that it Ralph Emery happened to flip it over and curious enough to put it down on the turntable and play it makes the lore of Rocky Top even that much more special well, to me. Well, you know, the, the story goes on, though. The, the arranger who arranged it uh, within the field uh, medley of country music, why would he have done that? Barry McDonald. one of many yep. songs. Barry McDonald, yeah. And, and why would they go and say, well, let's try that again. The audience seemed to like it, you know, and everything has been, been just a glorious... Uh, accident or a, or a happenstance of some sort. Well, Dell, that, yeah. that, that is a great transition for us to talk about how it became a part of 
the fabric of the University of Tennessee. Yeah, but before we do that, it was an afterthought, but then then your parents became pretty protective of it when the few times that it may have appeared in some form or fashion on in another song. So tell us about how they protected it, uh, how they become to love it so much they protected it when other artists attempted to infringe a little bit. Well, if you're a songwriter, what you make are um, what you make, you're making these objects of art and uh, they, they are your possessions. Right. And if they're successful, you certainly don't want anybody stealing your possession. It'd be like somebody coming into a factory where they make chairs and backing a truck up and taking a hundred chairs, you know? Right. Yeah. So their, their, uh, their property was very important to them, especially property that had become a source of income and a source of their livelihood. And Rocky Top was a popular song. And part of the reason it was so damn popular besides the Osborne brothers records was because, uh, Harold Bradley, who was the, the king of, uh, producers in Nashville for so many years, and the head of DECA, he cut it on uh, Hello Darling album with Conway. He cut it on Carroll County Accident uh, album with, uh, with someone else. I forget who now. He cut it on Dinah Shore. He cut it just about on everybody on DECA. And the song became very much a contemporary hit pretty quickly. And uh, Lynn Anderson had an, a, a separate single within a year that was a top 10 uh, hit. So the song became a valuable copyright quickly. And uh, my folks, as I said, protected their uh, property. There was a song that came out uh, a few years later called You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had hit number one before I'd really heard it. I I knew it was BMI. I had spoken to the songwriter. uh, And it was... It was a it was a very big hit, and I was going to lunch with the songwriter this one specific day when it was number one in Billboard, and I had found out shortly before that that this song I was told sounded a lot like Rocky Top. I sent it to my father. My father listened to it, and that very day I'm having lunch with this songwriter. My dad calls and says. That's Rocky Top. Mm. It's just a ballad. It just slowed down. And he said, I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I've got to sue on this. This is, a, this is a complete step, you know, all over our song. And so I had lunch with uh, one of the writers of the, of the song that day. And uh, I had booked the lunch to congratulate the, the guy. And uh, instead, I had to tell him, I hate to break this news to you, but my father's suing you. <laughs> and, uh, I, one of the worst days I ever had in, uh, at BMI. Wow. The, uh, speaking of Ralph uh, Emery, mm-hmm. Ralph had a daily television show, right. an early morning show. Right. It, it might have been weekly, but it, it was a time it was daily. But he is on his show, and he has someone coming up and singing, You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma. You know, they did a lot of, their bands covered a lot of the hits and sang to a live audience with a band. And Ralph is listening to it, and he says, huh. And he walks over, and 
he tells the band to keep playing and he moves the singer aside. He said to the band, he says, keep playing. He says, speed it up, speed it up. And they keep speeding it up and speeding it up. He says more and they keep speeding it up. And then he asks the audience, what are they playing? And the audience screams, Rocky Top. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, Vindication. <laughs> you know, because it was like, down, the, the, down, 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 work all day on a John Deere tractor. Dun, 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 dun. The prosecution oh, dun, rest, dun, dun, Your dun, Honor. Dun. <laughs> and so dad and mom went to in and out of California for a couple of years fighting this thing. And then finally, Warner Brothers threw their hands up and said, what do you want? Dad says, well, we want to be the publishers of uh, You're the Reason and the co-writers. And they and they are. Wow, good for them. But they, they protected it with a, a couple of very big records. One was a Merle Haggard record, yeah. which was, once again, everybody thought that that was, a, that was a, just a standard melody, you mm. know? Mm-hmm. And uh, after spending a lot of time in court with every musicologist either side could find, they never found anything that it was similar to, you know. Right. People try to say, it's, oh, it's like uh, Froggy went a courting or she'll be coming around the mountain. Well, it, it wasn't. Right. I started in the UT band as a freshman in 1973. And I can remember Rocky Top wasn't played during pregame. Rocky Top wasn't played after touchdowns. But it was Barry McDonald who wrote a medley, and I may stand corrected, but I think it was the Orange Blossom medley, something like that. And Rocky Top was the tune right in between a couple of other songs. But that was 1972, and so over the past 50 years, you and your family have had a great relationship with the Prowse Southland Band. Tell us about that. Well, I can can honestly say that... uh about the time that uh, the band started playing that with a little more regularity than, than, than you've just outlined, Dad, and, and it became something that my father was aware of, uh, which didn't take too long, Dad reached out to the school and, and had the occasion to meet Dr. Julian. Right. And Dad and Dr. Julian were like just the fastest friends you can imagine. They, I've heard a lot of stories stories about Dr. Julian, and he really uh, evidently could have, could be a rough customer on occasions. I but think he, this is true, and most of our listeners will agree to that. Yeah, <laughs> marched. but a wonderful character. I'm not, I'm oh, not yeah. really besmirching him. Oh, yeah. But he and Dad were both master musicians, mm-hmm. and musicians, they speak in a dialogue and in a language and at a rhythm and in different contexts than most people, and they just hit it off. And he invited dad and mom to a couple of games. And, you know, it was only a short while after that, that Rocky Top was just leaping off the field into the, into the culture of UT. And I can tell you for a fact that my folks could not be more proud of anything that they had written uh, than Rocky Top. Well, they moved up there shortly during that, during that time. And, uh, People used to point to the folks. People would come over in the middle of their dinner at one of the restaurants and say, are you the people that wrote Rocky Top and Dad? <laughs> yeah, yes, we are. <laughs> and uh, he would never allude to anything else that he had written or Mom had written or they had written. He wouldn't allude to the fact that they were professional songwriters. It didn't matter. What, what just thrilled him was that people would recognize him for Rocky Top. 
And several of his friends, uh, before my father passed in the 80s, said, you know, Budlow, when it's all said and done, you won't be remembered for uh, Bye Bye Love or Wake Up Little Susie or, <laughs> or All I Have to Do is Dream or Love Hurts or any of these songs that a lot of people know. That will long have been forgotten when you and Felice are barely memories, if that. But Rocky Top will still be going strong. And my father used to be very amused and think about that and say, well, maybe I've got one of those She'll Be Coming Around the Mountains or, you know, <laughs> one of those folk songs that, you know, everyone forgets who wrote it, but it lives on. And so he, he was really proud of it. And uh, when he was asked to come in, Mom, they were asked to come in and uh, they were going to be presented something on the field. Uh, I went up to the game with them and sat in the, sat with them, and then they were ushered down for halftime. And I forget, you know who, who they were playing. It was Oklahoma, or was it? Uh, oh, gosh, I don't know who they were playing. When I don't remember that there. either, no. but I and remember they, being at the game. But they were on the field, and uh, they presented one of the original uh, manuscripts, to the school, mm-hmm. uh, and there were a couple, like any famous painting, there are a couple of the originals where they, and they had started that without the books, so they had paper, and then when they got home, they 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 worked it out completely on the books. I say they. Dad was the keeper of the of the transcribing and writing, but uh, so they presented a uh, one of the original manuscripts to the university, and the university presented. Uh, Mom and Dad with this beautiful plaque, mm. which also is in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Awesome. And uh, my father and my mother, if you can go back and look at some of that, my father, he lost his forehead, his eyes, his nose, and all you could see were his teeth, smiling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and mother was just waving to the crowd with both hands. Uh, neither one of them had ever been in the middle of that kind of crowd. I mean, few people have been. Uh, and they... They always remembered that, and anything the university wanted, any uh, uh, permission to do anything, they got so easily. And in fact, when they were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York, the, other than my brother and uh, our families, the only people that were there were Dr. Julian and his wife and Rel Maples and his wife. Well, I did not know that. That's pretty awesome couple more questions. Very important question. Dale, where is Rocky Top? Now, I'm not talking about Lake City, Tennessee that changed their name, but where is Rocky Top? I understand there was also a muddy bottom, but where is Rocky Top? Well, they were songwriters. They just made things up lickety-split. We said I was on old Rocky Top. Dad wasn't thinking about where Rocky Top was. He was writing a song and just trying to quell mother's... Uh, anxiousness about growing old. I mean, that is a split second. Uh, when people would ask my dad that, he would, he, would, he would quite often honestly say, well, it's just a song. I don't know. And if that didn't satisfy him, he said, well, I think it's a, we're going to name a spot on our farm because uh, we, we still have the property out in Leaper's Fork area. And uh, then people heard a little of that and said, oh, it's out in Leaper's Fork. And then it was not on their farm, but close to Leaper's Fork. And then it was... In the Smoky Mountains. In the Smoky Mountains. So 
Hell, it's anywhere you want it to be. <laughs> How about Neyland Stadium? <laughs> it's that's Rocky Top. I think that is Rocky it. Top. Well, you know, it's it, it, the university has really embraced Rocky Top in oh, its yeah. marketing, and oh, and, yeah. and you know, when you uh, when you see things in admissions brochures, it's you know, come to Rocky Top. You know, and uh, that's how the PA announcer starts every uh, announcing for, before every football game. Now, welcome to Rocky Top. Yeah. Well, that's what the sports announcers. I find it just glorious. They all refer to going to UT as going to Rocky mm-hmm. Top. And someone's some uh, family friend of uh, mine and my wife's whose uh, child was accepted to uh, University of Tennessee. They got their acceptance uh, envelope kind of large. Uh, and they opened it up. They pulled out a card. And when you open the card that says you're accepted, it plays Rocky Top. <laughs> and I think that's fabulous. It is. You it's know, awesome. It's just wonderful. Yeah. So any other insights about Rocky Top? And maybe we'll conclude by asking you, since your retirement from BMI in 2014, how are you spending your time? What do you enjoy doing? Well, with regard to Rocky Top first, it is one of the – most recorded songs in our catalog. Mm. I mean, it's been recorded by every uh, major country act. I mean, I go uh, to graduation with my sister. My, my daughter graduated from University of Tennessee, and Dolly Parton's the guest speaker, and her first part of her speech is coming out on stage singing Rocky Top. No, I mean, it's it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Everywhere mm. they love bluegrass. Uh, Japan. I mean, it's a big song in Japan. It is... It it you can't compare it to any song in our catalog. It it has a it has this bigger life than any of the other standards, and it's unusual. And you uh, next week it'll be at a convention here in town. It's been programmed into a dog that dances and does flips, and it's dancing the Rocky Top. <laughs> uh, if you want to, you can come and go to the convention with me. And uh, it's it's used in so many ways. If you're at a bluegrass festival. You can be sure that the first act that usually gets on the stage is going to play it, and you're going to hear it many, many more times. It's uh, every country act out there. Kenny Chesney does it live sometimes because he's a, you know, a big Orange fan, yeah. and uh, East Tennessee boy. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so it's done live by everybody, and uh, it's in Vegas. If there's a country act, you know they're going to do it because up tempo songs are important. They they change the mood. They get the crowd going. And it's just, it, the utility of that song is incredible. And uh, we have no other song like that in our catalog. And uh, more people respond to the fact that uh, our, our folks, my brother and, and mine, uh, our folks wrote that song. They don't care about anything else, you know, really, except that, that, that one bit of phenomenon. So that's an amazing song. And it's there's none like it in in our in our experience. Well, uh, it's it, the diversity of it too. I remember my fir- the first time I ever heard it, and I think I've told you this story. Uh, early '80s, uh, had never stepped foot on the University of Tennessee campus, but I'm watching a, a a VHS tape of a Kenny Rogers movie called Six Pack. Oh yeah, it's in Six Pack. And uh, there's a scene where they're riding down the road, and these uh, the, the the kids in the back start singing in a very slow tempo, almost like a ballad, Rocky Top. And I fell in love with the song. And I remember 
rewinding that over and listening to it over and over and over again. I don't know how old I was at the time. Then, but, you, uh, then you arrived at a certain age and said, I have to go to work at the University that's right. of Tennessee. As, and, uh, but it's, uh, it's such a beautiful song that um, there's an element of magic in that song that is woven into the fabric of all Tennesseans. And uh, being that it's a, 1982, I think February of 1982, Lamar Alexander uh, has it, uh, uh, pushes to have it named a state song. And that had to have been an unbelievable honor for your parents as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you missed my father's nose and forehead at that occasion too. I mean, he was so happy, <laughs> but it, it's a totally unique song and uh, there's, there's none like it in our catalog. And uh, it's, it's uh it is a phenomenon. It's a miracle, and it's a blessing uh, to all of us. Uh, UT fans are Bryant family, you know. And you, you'd ask about uh, since I retired in fourteen. We have uh, fortunately the the copyrights of most of our songs, and uh, my brother has overseen a lot of the real estate that the family uh, has. A lot of stuff that my father and mother left us. They were. They were believers in things that, you know, they they made a living out of things you couldn't hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. But when they invested, they invested in things you could hold. I mean, land was very important to my father. And by the way, to our listeners who may not know, Leapers Fork is a community about 35 miles south of about downtown tw- Nashville. About about 22 or something. It's a lot okay. closer than you think. In Williamson County? Yeah. And uh, so... So Dane worked in real estate, and so Dane handled real estate uh, and the family business. And because I had such a long career in the music business and have a better understanding of the, the business end of that, certainly licensing and, and uh, how you make the most money possible off your copyrights, I took over the licensing in the, in the music end. So I, I licensed songs to, you know, to anybody who wants to use them. Uh, you you dicker over the price that they want to do it, but hopefully you come you come up at a good solution and a good price. But we're going to have songs. Uh, we had songs in the reboot of Dexter. We have songs in the new sis- season of uh, Handmaiden's Tale. We just had a song in the in the in the series Lost Dolly on Netflix. We we always have our songs being used because unlike. Unlike a lot of things, songs are such incredible time code. And if you're trying to speak of a certain time, uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the people who picked the songs for these shows generally they look at an old billboard uh, book called Joel Whitburn uh, that deals with all the songs that came out and where they fell in the charts. You can go to Joel Whitburn top 10 on any given year and so the people say, "Well, we're this this movie's in 1982. It was number one then," and they'll they'll find what they want for their for their movies, their television shows, and so forth. And so uh, we have a lot of great time code songs, and fortunately, we get a lot of great usages. And we're a one stop shop. We can say yes, and it and they don't have to call five other co publishers. So it's a it's a it's a telephone business these days, as so much is, and uh, that's what I do. And we have a, my wife and I, Carolyn, have a 18-year-old son who's in his last year in uh, high school, and so that certainly gets some of your attention too. I have to say, that's a full-time job. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, especially looking at all those colleges. 
Well, it's certainly been a pleasure having you with us today. And, you know, Brian Dell, while it wasn't written in the original manuscript, I'm talking about the woo. I think as we close today, we should sing that last line and do the woo. Dell, lead us on that. Okay. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top. Woo! Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. There we go. <laughs> well, ladies Thank and you, gentlemen. Ronnie. Brian, I really, I really had fun doing this. Uh, that's it for this segment of Around the Ladder podcast celebrating 50 years of Rocky Top. Dale, thank you so much for joining us. You provided so many insights. The son of Felice and Budlo Bryant, one of the sons of what has become a beloved song to Tennessee and maybe the most hated song ever for our other SEC schools. Ladies and gentlemen, our final segment of the Around the Ladder podcast featuring Rocky Top and 50 Years includes members of that 1972 Pride of Southland band, those members who first performed Rocky Top in Neyland Stadium. We'll be right back. This is Julia Boylan, head drum major for the Pride of the Southland marching band. On behalf of the more than 350 members of the Pride, I wanted to say thank you to all the UT fans that have cheered us on this season. A special thank you goes out to all the donors that support students like me and give us the opportunity to carry on our traditions. You can still make a gift before the end of this calendar year by visiting giving.utk.edu band. On behalf of the entire Pride family, thank you so much for your support and best wishes for a very happy holiday season. Welcome back, everybody, from uh, our break there with our good friend Del Bryant and uh, my special thanks to Del Bryant and to uh, Ronnie Bowling for uh, that great background information on uh, the origin story of Rocky Top and how that came to be and uh, also how the song became a part of the University of Tennessee uh, lore, so to speak. So we're here with segment two and I am so pleased to be joined by what I view as a uh, all-star cast of characters, and I want to go around uh, the ladder, so to speak, and introduce uh, our guest for this segment. Uh, first of all, I want to welcome Ken Langren, all the way from Texas, who came back uh, to be a part of this today. Ken, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, thank you so much for being here. Valerie Greer, formerly Valerie Hickson, uh, from the Chattanooga area. Valerie, how are you today? Just great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And then also we have Dan Field. Dan uh, was a part of the 1972 show and uh, brother of Jerry Field, drum major. And uh, we are glad to have you with us, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. And then finally, uh, Bill Cannell. Bill from uh, Parts Unknown in Alabama, where uh, he has probably been run out of the state after uh, recent events. Bill, how are you today? I'm just fine, thank you, and it's such an honor to be here today. Thanks so much. Well, um, thank you all for your time. Uh, We're excited to have this conversation. Uh, These folks all share a a common thread in that uh, in... 1972, specifically October 22nd, 1972, 
50 years ago. Uh, these folks uh, were a part of something that changed the course of history at the University of Tennessee. Uh, I would say changed the course of history in the state of Tennessee and certainly changed the course of history and uh, what we know about pageantry in college football, and that is what we all love and can never separate from the University of Tennessee, and that is Rocky Top. So, uh, folks, what, what I have brought you here today to talk about is your memories of uh, that, uh, that fall of 1972 and, uh, and how your recollections are of how Rocky Top got into a, I believe, a three-song medley that was played at the very end and we have to remember that the song was uh, released five years prior, but had never been played in Neyland Stadium, is my my understanding. So, Bill, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. You were drum major in 1972, is That's that right. correct? Yes. And um, you would have been uh, probably one of the closest with Dr. Julian in terms of the daily interaction and getting ready for uh, the various shows. What do you remember? about when you first heard that this bluegrass song was going to be a part of this uh, this medley well we had played a lot of country music in the in the past the um the counts of the of the music fit very well and ken's going to address that in just in just a bit but it was um very appropriate we thought for for tennessee to, to play that music that is so popular in in nashville and and now national now nationally um, but but Rocky Top was one of that medley there, and, and I really wasn't aware of, uh, or had never even heard of Rocky Top before. So, uh, like I said, it was part of the medley, and we were putting together a drill with that. So I was I was kind of oblivious um, as to what the the significance of that that was at the time. I was just trying to trying to survive as a first year drum major. I'd followed Dan, uh, or excuse me, Jerry had been there for four years. So I was I was just trying to stay under the radar as much as I could and <laughs> you do did my good yeah do my, do my job as I, as much as I could and and. Um, Try to survive. That I understand. Was basically, I understand. Well, you had an up close and personal view of the creation of that show that week. Remind everyone, uh, and am I correct? It was a, it was a three song medley. Is that accurate? Yes. What were the other two songs? Remind everyone. Columbus Stockade Blues. Uh, well, Bass Cannonball. There you go. I had no clues. Like I said, I was just trying to trying to get the counts and do the you know do, I didn't I didn't know the the names of the tunes. So as legend has it, it's been passed down, uh, to, at least to me, is that the person that probably deserved the most credit, uh, and Ken, maybe you can address this, was Barry McDonald for uh, having the idea to put Rocky Top in the medley. Can you talk about that? Barry was an outstanding arranger. He went on to a career arranging for Johnny Cash, but this was before then. Um, and he had been writing all the drills, all the, all the music for the drills. And when I did a new circle drill, I would he would want to know the counts. So the different sequence might take 16 steps or 32 steps. And then he would arrange the music so that when we made moves, it matched something in the music. And he was uh, he had learned when we were doing circle drills that a nice fast tempo was was good. And he started using country music because it had an interesting quick beat and, and worked well. So he had been doing that. And in this case, uh, this was uh, an Alabama show, and we, were, we almost always did a new circle drill, uh, one or more new circle drills every year. 
and these were um, I wouldn't say revolutionary, but no one had ever done them before. And so they were widely, they, people wanted to copy them, but probably couldn't. And it was part of our trademark to do that. So for this show, we needed a new circle drill. And instead of doing one circle in the center or one group of circles in the center, I decided to put two circles side by side. And we did, uh, we made uh, two flowers, circle flowers and two circle stars. And then I came up with an idea to build a spiral and you could make one spiral curve onto the others. And so I gave the counts for that, and as we, we built the spiral, and then the spiral wound on to another. And one rumor is that Barry was doing a country music medley, and he needed a certain number of counts at the end, so he came up with the idea of using Rocky Top. We don't know that for sure, but certainly it was there, and I think the announcer was going through talking about introducing each song, and then right at the end he said, and now a little town in Tennessee, and as they played the music, these two circles condensed and formed two spirals very quickly, and it was visually pretty impressive. The audience started applauding, and Dr. Julian, the great showman that he was, we would often play uh, the music from the halftime in the stands later, and Doc used to say, they liked it, we'll do it again. <laughs> so I think that's how it started getting played. Well, they sure did like it, and they continue to like it 50 years later. And uh, uh, I saw recently that uh, average average uh, times that the Pride of the Southland Band plays Rocky Top is probably around five to 600 times a season, and uh, much to the chagrin of our opponents. But uh, uh, Ken, what, what I find interesting about uh, your recollection there um, is the fact that now Barry was very connected with the with the Nashville music scene. Yes, and so uh, you know, Bill said just a minute ago he had never heard of Rocky Top. Uh, Valerie, had you ever heard the song before? If I had, I don't didn't remember it. Um, it. It was kind of a new tune for me, and that's why I was so surprised when what I remember happened, which was I was marching on the west northwest end of the field and i guess this spiral you're you're talking about it was just marching along and it was just right in the middle of the drill and i turned to head back to the northwest and i heard this roar something you didn't really hear in the middle of a drill and i thought what is this sound i don't know what's going on and as i flipped to reverse i looked up in the stands and they're clapping and stomping and um, I remember thinking, what's the deal? We're not doing anything really spectacular here. We're just kind of marching. Is it the song? Is it is something else going on? And it, it was just really a confused moment because I didn't know the song either, Bill. It was just... It can't be this, surely, but apparently it was. Apparently it was. Dan, how about you? Had, were you familiar with the song? I was not familiar with the song. I will say this. Uh, at the start of the rehearsals the week prior to the performance, um, I don't know that it caught on with me that good, but as the week went on and the performances came together and the drills going together, and it had a pretty darn good trombone lick in it. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good thing. Yeah, and so it grew with me. Well, you know, I don't know if this is true. I obviously wasn't there. I've just heard over the years that, um, that putting Rocky Top in that medley 
may or may not have been uh, a point of contention with Dr. Julian and uh, and and Barry McDonald, um, because what I have uh, what has been passed on to me is that uh, part of the way through the through the uh, the rehearsal that week. Doc had just gotten to the point and said to Barry, "You guys, and I guess Mr. Mack as well. You guys do whatever you want to do. I'm, 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 I'm done with it." And and Ken, to your point, when the reaction came, and Doctor Julian says, "Well, I think they like it," uh, and I have always heard that Barry and Mr. Mack just turned and uh, at him and gave him a pretty good smile because they knew that what they they were right again that may be urban legend i don't know if that is uh, is the way that it happened or not um but regardless uh it obviously was a hit and uh, and dr julian became one of the biggest fans of rocky top uh, that you would ever find uh and also the relationship that he and and the Boudlow, or excuse me, Boudlow uh, and Felice Bryant had uh, from that point forward was pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable indeed. So, let's talk about um, from a from a technical perspective. You guys are all musicians. I am not. What makes Rocky Top and the arrangement that the Pride of the Southland Band has such a catchy tune? Why did it work? Why do you think it worked? Well, it's Rocky Top, Tennessee. <laughs> it is Tennessee. And I think it uh, connected with the fans uh, in that respect. And as the song grew, we did it halftime. To my recollection, that was the first time Rocky Top was played. From there, it grew to the stands. And, Bill, I can't remember if... We did it at basketball games. Was that when we first did Rocky Top in the stands, or did we start doing it right after that performance? We did it. We did it. Um, we had two folders of, of music. We had the 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 field music and then the stand music. And and if you remember, Dan, we had to switch that over from the field music to the stand to the stand folders that next that next week to play it. That's how yeah. how popular Doc uh, thought that that was. And uh, we played it some at the at the games. Uh, at the football games and and uh, I think once or twice it it became very popular and then when we played it at the basketball games uh, it it became even more popular then the question came up when did the when did the crowd start singing along with it and that was that was well after my time I don't have any idea but to my knowledge that is the the only only time uh, in in universities that where the the band sings the whole or the the audience sings the whole tune with the with the band or along with the band I, i've never heard of that before since except at university of tennessee you know one of the things that uh, often is asked of uh del bryant is um is whether or not he thought his father would like the woo and the fact that uh, the, the fact that you know you don't mess with an artist's uh, you, you know uh, original arrangement, and, and he always says he thinks that his dad would just be mad he didn't think of it. So, <laughs> but I don't know what year the the, the woo came into uh, into uh, our consciousness. Uh, I've I've heard many many different versions of that. Uh, I think usually it seems to be maybe in the mid to late 80s. I'm not sure if that is if that is accurate or and not. My guess would be the trombone section started. <laughs> I, I, that, the rumor that I heard was it was the trombones, and uh, we have a confession to make. Uh, Dan and Bill and I not only have this relationship 
Um, we all three are and were trombone players. We were playing together in the trombone choir of uh, the Don Huff, the trombone professor, caused. So um, that's a confession that I have to make, and I hope the police don't arrive any time during this <laughs> broadcast. Ken, just don't expect any royalties off of it. Yeah. I think we'll be okay. We just don't. You know, there's some things you just you just don't tell in public. So that some of our stories will just have to go unsaid right now. Well, um, I, you know, while while we have you guys here. Uh, uh, we, the, the the pride of the Southland on the 50th anniversary of the playing of, of Rocky Top um, is going to be recreating your show, Ken. And um, by the time this podcast is aired, it would have already done that. Uh, but you were talking earlier about uh, the intricacies and the fact that you were uh, putting something in front of the audience that the audience had never seen before week in and week out, which made you know, part of what made the, the Pride of the Southland so incredibly popular and, and really elevated the reputation. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the drill itself. You alluded to it a little bit, but uh, I think it's great to hear how you and Barry and Dr. Julian worked together to pull those, uh, those shows together. So take us through from a blank piece of paper to the product on the field what that what that took to put the put the uh, the drill out there so part of this is a story that i tried to keep a secret for a long time um most of my friends when i was an undergraduate were music ed majors even though i was a physics major and in the the fall of their senior year many of them scheduled their student teaching for the fall so they would not have to march I did not have that capability, but I didn't want to be in the band without those other trombone players around me, so I scheduled some labs during that time. And I went to tell Dr. Julian, I'm sorry, Tuesday and Thursday afternoons I have these two-hour labs, and I don't think I'll be able to march. And he said, well, you know, you could probably learn it in, the, in just the morning rehearsals on Tuesday and Thursday. I said, I just, I don't think I could possibly do that. And he said, well, okay. And then I said, um, well, what are you thinking about doing? We had originally done uh, some of the very first circle drills, just made circles. And I said, well, have you thought about this? I, what if we could make circles coming out from the center like ripples in a pond? He said, he gave me a bunch of chart paper and said, show me. So I, I started drawing out what I thought would work. And that fall, again, for I think it was the Alabama game, on television, we did that that drill, and that was my first circle drill. It made made uh, circles come out from the center and go out, and then come back and forth like ripples, and that kind of started my career. I went away uh, to uh, to work in the defense industry for a year, and then I came back to graduate school at Tennessee and started writing again. So we were we learned how to make circles, and this was difficult because you didn't have any yard lines to guide against. We had to. Uh, get the drum major in the center holding a string and walk, someone would hold the string in the center and the drum major would walk around guiding people to make their positions on the circle correctly and Bill was one of the best at it and he would always tell people move your feet not your head because we were trying to get them in the right spot so once you got the circle made perfectly then everyone was really good marchers so they could march their eight to five step accurately enough that they could go in and out and I thought what else could we do besides just going in and out? Well, you can do things where you march off every two steps. That's called a two-step drill. And that made a formation that began to look like flowers that would rotate. 
And then I was thinking, what else could you do? I bet there's a way that you could make a spiral. And that took a little mathematics to work on. So I wanted to do that. So I kept thinking of these new things to do. And the bands were so good. The, the, the instrumentalists, the players were play, could play so well, play and march, and they had marched so well that they could do these difficult drills, and I could try all these things out. Someone came to me once and said, you think we have to be as perfect as that stuff you do on the computer to make it to draw it out? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and once you, pl- you march perfectly, we can judge you on your musical quality. And, and they always did, and the bands were really good. So this was an exciting time for me because I was getting to use my imagination, and then I never really knew what the drills were going to look like because in the rehearsals you couldn't see it. So Monday morning we would get to see the films and I would finally see the drills and say, oh, okay, okay, that worked out okay. You know, we'll try this next time, things like that. So that was an exciting time for me to get to use my creativity and it was even more exciting because the bands were so good. They were really good high school players and they came and continued to work in college and they worked very hard. Um, as Dr. Julian used to say in rehearsal, it ain't raining unless I say it is because we would be out there practicing. And so those fine groups did such good performances and Barry's arrangements worked so well. That's what made everything work. And for me, it was just great to be a part of it. And it's great to you know have memories and get to talk to people that were a part of the same group at the same time. And it's nice to be here talking to you. Sometimes, Ken, I reflect back to that show when we did the flower going in and out. You put me in that compromising position as a trombone (laughs) player where I had to do step, turn, step, turn, step, turn, step, turn. I had to do it four times, and I believe I said something to you about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised. One of the one of the things that that Ken alluded to, uh, he's he was talking about the eight to five step. That is, that is when we're moving moving um, across the yard lines perpendicular to the yard lines. We had a certain size step, which took we took eight steps in five yards. Um, so Ken used that in part of his in in most of his drills there, where the where we we knew what the step size would be, whether we were using the yard lines or not, and that that made it that made it much much more doable. Uh, and Ken's creativity and, and ability to do that uh, was was just remarkable. That was were you able ever able in those early years? There was no computer programs or anything that you could do that with. No, in, in about 1974, I wrote the first time in order to make those charts. I, I wrote a program in Fortran. I was using Fortran in my graduate work, and I had to program it on punched cards. And I used the mainframe computer here at the University of Tennessee, which people were going to like this, it had 128K of memory. And from (laughs) K, you go to M, meg, and now gig. So uh, my cell phone has about 100 times or 1,000 times more memory than the mainframe computer that I used to draw those pictures. They weren't animated at those times, but at least I could make the charts perfectly. And that's why people you know, knew exactly where they were supposed to be, whether or not they could get there, was a, another problem. That was, that was our problem instead of his problem. Uh, one of the things while we were working out the final stages of, the, of that flower, flower drill, we had some, some places on the very outside circle where, where it was it was was difficult to make that that turn work and 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 Dr. Julian had seen us not struggling with it but trying to trying to make it smoother so the, the only time I remember him ever leaving a marching rehearsal he said uh, I'll be back at 2:30 see you and he walked out the walked out the tunnel there and we we knew 
that it was time to get it done before he get before he got back. And uh, we just toyed with it a little bit and, and made it work. And he was he was so happy with it when he got back. He said, "Oh, that's just wonderful. Well, the crowd will love that." Not even not even talking about the music. He was just talking about the drill. And then and then uh, the the way that Rocky Top caught on after that was just just amazing I mean I, I can remember as we were coming off the field for the, getting ready to do the alma mater that that it was a standing ovation and um, you know I was just flabbergasted um, try, just trying to comprehend like you were saying Valerie what was what had had um, caused that what had had inspired them to to have that kind of reaction because we always got a, always got a really positive reaction from the audience but but that's the first time I've ever seen that kind of ovation just that just lasted on and on and on right and in the middle of the drill absolutely. not at the end they just all absolutely. of a sudden yeah and then we had to we had to um, wait until that ovation ovation settled down a little bit to do the next tune so they could hear the whistle so i could hear doc over on the sidelines screaming wait wait and he was yelling loud enough for me to hear it in the center of the field over all this you know this those ninety thousand people so uh, luckily i i heard him enough to to be able to, to wait and got started and then we got to the got set up in the in the teeth of the alma mater and there was still just an ovation going and i was you know, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, it was just, it was beyond my comprehension. And as a drum major, I was going, now, what do I, what do I do now? How do I get the band started when they can't hear me? And I can't, I can't at that point, I couldn't even hear what Doc was saying to me. And he was pretty close. And uh, his voice carried very well, by the way. So, <laughs> so that was, that was just, just such a thrill, such a thrill. I'll, I'll never forget that. Well, I think it's, it, it's a testament to, uh, uh, how uh, important of a moment it was being that the four of you are sitting around here today 50 years later and have those memories particularly when you think about all of the shows that you you were involved in and how this one for whatever magical reason stands out uh, uh, among uh, among all the other ones um, we're going to take a short break and when we come back we are going to talk a little bit more about Dr. Julian, and we're going to talk about the fact that uh, the 50th anniversary of Rocky Top also correlates with another important red letter day uh, for the Pride of the Southland Band. We'll be right back. This is Julia Boylan, head drum major for the Pride of the Southland Marching Band. On behalf of the more than 350 members of the Pride, I wanted to say thank you to all the UT fans that have cheered us on this season. A special thank you goes out to all the donors that support students like me and give us the opportunity to carry on our traditions. You can still make a gift before the end of this calendar year by visiting giving.utk.edu band. On behalf of the entire Pride family, thank you so much for your support and best wishes for a very happy holiday season. Welcome back to this episode of Around the Ladder. My name is Brian Hardy, Director of Campus-Wide uh, Initiatives here at the University of Tennessee. It's my honor and pleasure to be joined once again uh, with, uh, we'll call them the Rocky Top Players from 1972, Valerie Greer, Ken Langren, uh, Bill Cannell, and, of course, Dan Field. We appreciate you guys being here. Um, so, October 22nd, 1972, 50 years to the day, the Pride of the Southland Band is uh, going to be recreating the uh, 
show from 1972. Ken, talk a little bit about uh, your interaction with Dr. Stewart and Dr. Lyon over the summer, uh, as they have, uh, I understand, been kind of picking your brain a little bit to try to, to put this show together for Homecoming 2022. Sure. They sent a message saying, do you remember what music they played for that show? And I said, uh, let's think. There was Columbus Stockade Blues and um, what was the other one? Wabash Cannonball. Wabash Cannonball and, of course, Rocky Top. And then it turns out that over the years I had saved a lot of the charts that I had originally written. So I said, I think I may have that one. And I pulled through and found it, and there it is. I said, yeah, not only that, um, I can get, I'll, I'll ask around to make sure I know all the tunes. And, then, uh, but, and if it would help, I actually have some of the original charts. And they said, oh, can you send them? So I scanned them in PDF and sent the, the, the three main charts, including the spiral and the, the flower and the star. I just sent that to them. And Dr. Stewart sent back, well, that's, that's really interesting. We may find some way to use that in the future. That was some time ago. So evidently, they, uh, they decided to do that and to recreate the original uh, show. Um, I hope not from the original charts because they were a little smudged by now and they were all drawn by hand. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see that again. And uh, they'll probably even play one of the tunes we all remember. Well, I, I know this homecoming and, and the fact that it is the 50th anniversary is, uh, has uh, attracted a very large crowd that is going to be participating in the alumni band uh, on Saturday and, and being a part of recreating that show. You know, uh, October 22nd is another important day, and I don't know if you uh, all realize this, uh, but October 22nd uh, is the 100th birthday of one W.J. Julian. Wow. So what a wonderful, wonderful thing to celebrate the, the, those two historic moments coming together. And uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, just give you all an opportunity to talk about uh, Dr. Julian and, uh, and your relationship with him and, and what he meant to you personally. Bill, you want to lead that off? Sure. I had known Dr. Julian for, for quite a few years before before uh, I, I came to UT. He and my dad worked together a lot with, with different projects. And uh, I, I always respected him, but there was always this this fear, too. Um, of of not not reaching his his uh, his goals, uh, he set very high standards, and but but not only set those, but he knew how to achieve those, how to how to teach and lead uh, his students and his staff to 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 reach those goals. So there are there, there are so many there are so many stories um, that are that are funny and and very 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 enjoyable to tell. He had a great sense of humor, a great wit. And so quick with, with his with his responses that that uh, it was it was just it was something that that we all mimic his his uh, his voice. He had a, a very interesting interesting dialect, and um, it was it was a lot of fun. But uh, but again, frightening too. His drum major um, had a lot of a lot of um, responsibility that that. Um, Dr. Jewett couldn't couldn't um, have direct input on that because I was on the field with the rest of the band and he was on the sideline. Although a couple of times I was afraid he was going to run out on the field with us during the, during the show, but that that um, 
that responsibility has taught that that taught me for for my entire life how to take that that responsibility and and um the way that he taught us, I've been able to adopt some of those things as a as a teacher. I was a band director for 44 years before I retired a few years ago and used those same methods. Of course, you have to adapt it to the students as they've changed a little bit too. But that, that uh, ability to lead, that ability to inspire, and that creativity that he had is just just uncomparable and just really don't know anybody else that was able to do that and and bill you you mentioned your father jack Mm canell and um your father was the superintendent of uh instrumental music for uh knoxville city schools right right right. yeah he was supervisor and uh i know that he and dr julian had a, a great friendship and also um, you know, really developed, I guess, what would be known as the, the Big Orange Pipeline from this high school talent that Ken talked about earlier uh, that were had the great fundamentals and then got to the University of Tennessee and Dr. Julian, under his tutelage, really helped blossom that. So your father is uh, as much a part of the success of the University of Tennessee's Pride of the Southland as, as anybody. And and also you got a, another little connection in, in what we call the Maryville Five. You were the first of uh, five consecutive drum majors to come out of Maryville High School, right? That's correct. Including yes. your brother, Mark. Right, right. And um, um, Tom DeLosier and Del Hurst and Ed Nichols, we, we all were there together and, and um were consecutive drum majors in high school and then moved to the moved to the university so that was that was something special i don't know if that's if that's happened around the country either it's pretty unique for sure and then and and you uh followed uh jerry uh dan's brother uh dan what what uh what are your memories of dr julian and how he he uh, impacted you Brian, I I don't even know if I could uh, take the rest of the day to tell you how much he influenced me. And I think, Bill, you mentioned how much he influenced musicians and band directors, but he influenced everyone. I was able to work for Dr. Julian uh, Walter and Gail Hunter for the six years that I was at the university. I was on a work-study program, and I worked for the band. And so I got to know the intricate details of the band and more than that, learned what kind of person Dr. Julian was. His My first real face-to-face confrontation with him was he ran up to me when we were opening up the tea. And by the way, it was Phil Fulmer's first year to run through the tea. He said, with a few adjectives, good trombone players can't play that loud. <laughs> so I learned... I learned how to um, fit in with the group better after that lecture. Uh, But sincerely, I just, he taught me so much. And last night, I knew I had to get up early because I knew that I could get any chance of rush hour traffic in Nashville and Knoxville. But I'm laying in bed. I said, I ain't going to be late. Well, Valerie, many years ago, you told me the story of uh, of your parents dropping you off uh, at the University of Tennessee as a freshman, and your first uh, interaction with the, with Dr. Julian. Um, and you you were a trombone player when you first went in high school, and then you made the switch. But talk about 
that story, if you would, because I think it's such a great story of uh, of your freshman band camp and getting dro- dropped off uh, and maybe being a little intimidated, let's just say. Just, just a little. Uh, I, I knew no one. I was coming up here from Sequatchie County High School, knew no one else. They said to be, I guess it was 8 o'clock, um, but that's 7 o'clock Central Time, so my parents dropped me off at 5 till 7. I opened those bedroom doors, and there were 350 people in their seats, and he was on the podium. And they all turned and looked at me. And I looked at my watch. I thought I was on time. I was early, but obviously not. And I started looking for a chair, and then he he just sort of flipped his hand over, like to get a chart. I had never seen a chart. I had never seen a chart in my life. Gail Hunter came and kind of helped me so I had made a great first impression by being late we got to the field to practice marching uh, pregame the first thing we're going to practice is straight line and I felt these arms come up and grab my shoulders and push me forward and I'll leave out the expletive if you can't stand in line I will send you back to that holler you came from (laughs) (laughs) and then after that that was my second big thing after that uh, we came back from lunch and he looked down from the ladder and said who didn't get their charts and he said K23 well I looked and it's here, and I have my music. And he kept yelling, K-23, K-23, and I just sort of held it up. And I said, but I have my chart. And he looked back, K-28. So <laughs> I made three <coughs> huge impressions on him my first day. And I remember looking up in the stands, and my parents, I'm an only child, they had stayed, and, but I thought they were gone. And I just remember waving, don't leave me, don't leave me. <laughs> And so they stayed. Rescue me. Rescue me. <laughs> he really, he, I was scared of. I was terrified. But then the first night game, several of us were just eating in the, the dorm vending machines. And obviously something was bad. And when we came off the field, I apparently was white as a sheet. And he was 20 feet away and looked at me and came running with that little backward run and said here let me take your hat you don't look well and said you go you go so Hmm. that helped for the rest of the the time to know that he had that soft spot too so well ken you you have a very unique perspective because not only did you march but you also collaborated with dr julia you worked together to make it all happen um, and I know that it must have been a special relationship. Yes, there were many things about it. Um, one thing was uh, our many planning sessions that we held at the Regus restaurant for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a martini. Uh, maybe, maybe two. Maybe two, yes. <laughs> and uh, after, on those days, uh, Gail Hunter would always be still running the band room and Doc would uh, would leave for the afternoon, but then he would call in at about a quarter to four, to quarter to five, something like that, just to check on things. So uh, we we worked together a lot, had a few fights, as is uh, as is done. One thing that I remember so much about Doc would be in those days, 
um, almost all the time, we would go to the away games, and visiting teams would bring their bands as well. So there were two halftime shows. And as I recall, um, if it was a home game, the visiting team, the visiting band would perform first, and then ours would perform second, and vice versa when we went away. So there was a certain amount of rivalry between the bands. And Doc used to say, we ain't competing against them. We're competing against us. And that's what everyone thought. We're not worried about, you know, them. We're worrying about the last time we performed. Are we better this time than that time? And that, that standard of excellence is why there's still generations of people coming back for homecoming. Uh, there's generations of band directors. Uh, there were several uh, professional musicians that went on to symphony careers that were in that band, and they always remember things in, in, in terms of, of rehearsals. The other saying was, if you're on time, you're late. If you're early, you're on time. If you're late, you're dead. <laughs> there were stories about people that missed the band bus going to some trip. They got cars or took airplanes and made it there and made it on time for those things. So that, that, that responsibility, uh, that paying attention to time, being on time, having your music, having your, your hat, your spats, all those things that we had for uniforms, that stuck with people for years and years. And that, that standard of excellence is still going on today. 153 years uh, of the pride of the Southland Band and still going strong and maybe maybe just about as strong as it has ever been with, uh, I believe, about 365 members this year. Um, what do you think, uh, folks, 50 years from now? Uh, we'll, we'll all be gone, but I would imagine Rocky Top is still going to be being played there in Neyland Stadium. What do you think? I, I think there's no there's no doubt about it. The the tradition has has been uh, established for such a long time that that not only will the university and the the students um, maintain that, but the alumni will say this this needs to continue. This is a tradition that that we grew up with and that we've experienced, and we want we want the other young people coming in to to experience that too, to have that same opportunity that that we had. Well, you talk about a little bluegrass song that uh, really was written on a whim, never really intended to, to be anything that has been played around the world. It's been played in cathedrals. It's been played in the, on, the, on the floor of the United States Senate. It's been played uh, just about anywhere that you can think of uh, and has all been made what it is today, really. And Del Bryant and the Bryant family would tell you that if it wasn't for the pride of the Southland Band and the University of Tennessee, it would just be another song in the catalog of Felice and Boudlow Bryant. But uh, the pride of the Southland Band and the University of Tennessee have, have, uh, is what has made that song so incredibly special. What else is special is uh, the relationship that our alumni have with uh, this program, the fact that the four of you uh, drove uh, a pretty good distance to be here and be a part of today's podcast. Uh, I can't thank you enough for your participation. This has been a lot of fun as we have uh, recounted the history and the memories of Rocky Top. Uh, we appreciate it. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Around the Ladder. Special thanks to my co-host, Ronnie Bowling, our friends at 90.3 Rock FM here on the UT Knoxville campus. Until next time, we will be Around the Ladder.